when covid happened we definitely saw that this probably a you know there's something again we can probably help out in this particular scenario because we already had the capability to detect the corresponding findings already so we repurposed that entire software so it was already detecting those 20 28 things so we said that we now want to look at if we can also do look at covid and pick that up from the chest x rays and what we found that there were two specific uses that we have been able to sort of use the software for so the first one is in places like for example we had deployed in uk we have deployed in italy so some of the hotbeds of covid right and what we found mexico as well so what we found in all these places is that the software is extremely helpful in monitoring the progression of how the once a patient has been admitted right and you want to sort of monitor how the patient is improving on a day on day basis or probably on a 2 to 3 day interval period chest x rays is the most common way because there's nothing more i'm nothing better than that to sort of monitor how their lung has been improving or you know deteriorating over a period of time hey everyone welcome to brains behind ai show where we meet the innovators entrepreneurs and the real brains behind some of the most successful AI startups. We ask them about their journey from coming up with the idea to finding the product market fit and from their experience draw a set of principles that we can take away to ours. This is your host Ari. Thank you for spending time with us. And now, let the show begin. Hello and welcome to another episode of Brains Behind AI. This is a special episode for two reasons. One because the guest is a really old friend of mine that I go way back with. So we'll be catching up on the episode as well. And two, he's on to some exciting stuff. His company was recently ranked by Forbes as one of the top 15 companies that are saving the world from COVID-19 and we'll learn all about that. And as always I am here with my awesome co-host Natalie Thomas. Natalie, how are you? Hi Ari, I am doing well. How are you? I am good. Good. Great. Excited to talk to Rohit today. I am excited too. And for everybody listening, a little brief background and intro to Rohit. Rohit is a IIT Bombay grad and founding member of Cure AI with a mission to make healthcare more affordable and accessible through the power of artificial intelligence. Cure AI was just ranked by Forbes as Ari just mentioned as one of the top 15 companies that are saving the world from COVID-19. Previously, Froit worked as an AI scientist and was deeply involved in building R&D products in the computer vision area. He also worked as a data scientist for ListUp. Apart from Cure AI, Froit has been widely involved in mentoring and teaching data science students. He also has 15 plus publications in multiple journals worldwide. Rohit, welcome to the show. Hey, hi Ari, hi Natalie. Thanks, thanks a lot for that brilliant introduction, though. <laughs> You're so welcome. Great to chat with Ari after so long. Yes, excited to catch up. But Rohit, before we dive into how you're saving the world, let's take a minute to tell the audience about your personal journey. How did you get into entrepreneurship, and what led you to healthcare? Oh sure. So I'll probably start uh, around 2014. So 2014 is when I graduated out of IIT Bombay, which is one of the fairly reputed technology colleges in India. And like most of the people, I guess I had the most lucrative job offer on the campus, which was an investment bank. 
and I joined in there for you know and obviously in when the banks come on to the show I mean come on to the campus they normally talk a lot about the fancy maths and statistics that you would get to do and obviously I was impressed by that I wanted to do that but when he ended up there I was really sort of dismayed by the kind of work that I was doing so within first six months I realized that's the kind of thing I definitely don't want to do yeah I quit that job I mean I quit that within I guess nine months or somewhere around there and the idea was at that point of time was you know I wanted to do something that had more meaningful more impact that I could create I had been toying with few ideas at that point of time so started working on a few of them around that so this is 2015 I'm talking about some of those ideas really did not work out uh, for one of the ideas we did raise some funding but then very mild small amount but we realized that that's not something we really want to work on so it was idea on a uh, log using data science it was not called ai back then 2015 ai was not a real world and ai is not cool so we used data science back then and we tried doing something but that also did not work out yeah i think at that's the point of time i think 2016 is when i also came in touch with you and then i was working on a bunch of different things simultaneously and then through that journey cure happened so yeah it's a sort of a up and down journey where i ended up in a job which i did not at all like and then wanted to do something which was more impactful much more on the edge and that's how cure sort of came in that's awesome right you're touching on a couple of good things one in which it's a pretty common trait that we have seen in and other entrepreneurs as well where if they're not satisfied at the work they want stay for the salary they want stay there for status quo they'll quickly move and quick they'll be out seeking for for something better that's more aligned and it's awesome to see that you found that it was not purposeful it wasn't meaningful so you kept looking and kept iterating that's great that's awesome i mean i remember this one advice that someone gave me and i that sort of really stuck with me till today is that at that young age you can afford to take a risk and you can actually afford to work on things that really interest you which and the person was like you know probably 10 years down the line you really have a lot more liabilities and you know there are a lot of things to take care of and can make those decisions so if there's any point you want to live that life that was probably that right right out of college you have very less burden on yourself so yeah that's exactly the mantra i took to heart and i just started working on that and i absolutely have no regrets at all that's amazing all right now let's dive into cure so where was the calling how did you get the calling to cure what triggered that interest right so as i said i mean 2015 we were working on the startup and the major reason the startup although we had some decent funding and decent amount of uh user traction in the startup that we were doing in logistics space it was around transporter sort of using data science to optimize more for how logistics is handled within india but one thing we quickly realized was that was although that was a startup we were doing but it was not really impactful and it was not something which is scalable as such so that's when i started looking for what is really impactful right because as i said the idea was i quit my job because i was not very happy with what i was doing it was not impactful and you know to do something which is beyond just myself right something which has more meaning to it and that's when i was looking for what could be done so i came in touch with prashant who's the currently the ceo and other co-founder of cure and when i met him obviously at that point of time it was not cure it was uh, it was fairly a ai for healthcare kind of an idea we discussed and that's obviously something 
you know, when we discussed this idea that AI, what AI could play in healthcare was something obviously I was very excited about because I genuinely saw the impact that I was really longing for suddenly, you know, have some ideas as to how that could shape up, right? And then we obviously, the first four months, I said, so this is a conversation I think we are having somewhere around March. Finally, the official, I mean, the way cures sort of shaped up and finally the registration and everything probably happened somewhere around June, right? But then we started working on a bunch of different ideas at that point of time, right? So it was not really AI for radiology as cure is today. At that point of time, when we started, it was primarily AI on a bunch of things. For example, I was working on AI in uh, usage of prediction of cardiac transplant patients, the survival rate. If you're doing a transplant, what are the, you know, how to sort of match organ donations, organ donors and recipients correctly. So yeah, some of those kind of things where some other folks were working on uh, genomics and, you know, so yeah, the, the entire founding team was there, but we were working on different things. We were not really sure what's the thing that we want to finally focus on. And then over obviously some time and some more user case validation and a lot of things happened before we finally got onto that piece of, you know, AI for radiology and cure as it is known today, right? So that sort of happened much later, I guess, somewhere around 2016 end. But yeah, th- th- that's a journey in a very different way. I mean, I can probably talk about that also in a bit more detail, but that's how Cure got started. And how did you come up with the name Cure AI? I always like to ask this question because <laughs> I find it fascinating with so many different entrepreneurs and CEOs, and there's so many different little messages in, in the names of the companies. How did you come up with Cure AI? Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> probably going to be <laughs> disappointing you there because there's not really much of us I mean, so frankly, we were looking for something which is short, sweet, and easy to remember. Obviously, cure with the C was something we wanted, but that's that domain was taken up, right? So <laughs> the easiest thing that we could come up with it was cure with a Q, and that sort of stuck. I mean, somehow, I mean, because the way we looked at it, now all of our products actually like start. So the, there's a product for chest X-ray which is called QXR. There's something for FCT called QER. So yeah, now that Q is basically part of all our products, but when we started off, it was really nothing genuinely, but uh, the domain name not being there. But I think it's memorable because yeah. if you think of some other companies, like even for like a meditation app, it's called Calm, but everyone right. can relate to that. And I think mm-hmm. using the Q is something really different. So very interesting. Yeah, it's a very short name. I think people do tend to remember. That's yeah, that's fairly true. Yeah, that's that's one thing that stood out when when I saw you put that on LinkedIn and you started the company. I was like, wow, that's that's a pretty cool name. But I think at that point you were experimenting with a lot of use cases. So I, I like that, right? You, you you said, okay, let's take AI, let's apply it to healthcare. Healthcare needs AI, and there is a lot that can happen. You started diving into different use cases. You probably saw so good results and, and AI I know cuts across, right? You can do AI and R and D and you can do AI with real world evidence and all that. Where does it sort of hit you that okay, we need to go a little deeper into the computer vision and the diagnostics with X-rays and all that? Yeah, I think so when we started working on a few things, one of the other things that we started working was on lung nodule detections from chest CTs. And that was also one of those varied problems. Now, what we very soon realized was two things, actually. So firstly, in terms of accuracies of AI models and the state of the art, at least back then, 
you, you had a lot more higher accuracies that you could reach. So the computer vision part of things were a lot more robust, I would say, as opposed to the other parts of AI back then. And I, I would still tend to think it's probably similar. I mean, language probably has come up a lot in the last four years, but uh, vision and language are probably way more involved than other pieces. So computer vision obviously was more robust. There was a lot more innovation that was happening. And yeah, that actually had a really generalizable-ness in it, right? So if you could work on something for detecting cat and that would work fairly similarly for detecting dogs, for example. So that was one part of the decision-making that we realized that, yeah, computer vision has that capability. And also it can grow extremely accurate with more and more data that was coming in it. So we saw some of the open source data set you know, and how accurate systems built on them were getting. So that was one part of the thing. The second part, which is also very interesting, is that we realized that the value that we can generate, right, uh, and the people whom we can reach out to and sort of the exact, you know, the value that we are creating there was way more with computer vision and radiology per se than with other things. So for example, the open source, so for the organ donation thing, right, so we realized we worked out a model and all of that, but we found it was a fairly limited use. And also the usage was very constrained to very few people. And where also we are, I mean, the value we are providing in terms of a better matching was probably very hard to sort of realize. For radiology on the other side and computer vision, it was the value was much easier to explain to people. And people also perceived the value much easier, I would say. So I think those two things primarily contributed to us looking at, you know, AI for computer vision. So were you funded at that point or were you just two guys working from a garage? So when we started, it was not, it was sort of a garage, but when we started, it was, there's a parent company called Fractal.ai. So they had initially seed funded us. So we were primarily working out of their premises. And yeah, so that's how they had that initial stage. So what that actually gave us and which I, we are really thankful for is that first two years we could really take out our time to sort of you know really focus on R&D and sort of make the world-class product so we did not have a pressure of sort of commercialization and any any of that what that allowed was you know that entire two years of just complete sharp focus on R&D and sort of making the product work and making a good quality research enabled us to sort of publish in a bunch of journals. We could get a lot of peer-reviewed publications out there in the market. And as a company in healthcare, that is extremely important because trust is something which is primarily what drives healthcare, right? If, if you don't trust the AI company, you're not normally going to do business with them, right? And that's something that worked very much in our favor, that the fact that we have been extremely transparent, honest, and you know, consistently been publishing what we are doing. It's, we are not claiming that this is just an AI model with this much accuracy or that much accuracy. So we had everything published, open. Everyone knew how we were building all of that. So yeah, that entire two year to get that funding and do that was very critical to put that research out in the open. So was it just you developing at that point or did you have other people working as well? Yeah, yeah. I think the entire team, I think all five of us as part of the founding team and also we got more people to join in. But yeah, the primary aim was just development. I mean, working on different models, I think only late 2017, we started so working on models and I would say looking for how to get more data to train on. Those were primarily the only things that we focused on. So not really focused on like how to make that commercial. So we were trying to understand the use cases, 
but not really as focusedly as just trying to build product and get more data. So that was the entire team trying to do at that point of time. And how exactly did you validate the market when you came up with the idea for Cure and working on the startup of Cure? So I think the validation sort of started happening in pieces in 2016, early 2016, when we, you know, when we were trying to look at whether to go for computer vision for AI altogether or not, right? So computer vision for AI itself is a very big field, right? I mean, you could focus on radiology, you could do pathology, you could do a bunch of things otherwise as well. And we were trying to again figure out if radiology, also radiology itself is big, right? There are chest x-rays, chest CTs, so a bunch of different modalities, different kinds of images. So we definitely started talking to a lot of people, you know, specifically the hospital, healthcare providers, you know, trying to understand what's their pain point, right? And obviously one of the things, for example, came up is, at least in Southeast Asia, a big problem is around chest x-rays because chest x-rays don't get reported I mean, they're normally the most voluminous scan that you would do in a healthcare facility. And at the same point of time, the turnaround time, because it's the most voluminous, it's also the lowest least paid, right? And if it's because of both those things, you normally don't have scans being reported almost for 10 days, 15 days in some places, right? That sort of spurred us to action, right? So we saw a clear problem that was there. And the more people we started talking to, I think that problem sort of started becoming extremely critical and specifically for tuberculosis, for example. So one of the first things that we got started was with tuberculosis diagnosis and screening. And TB is a big problem in India. For example, in India, it's the largest actual public epidemic. I mean, today also COVID is probably just not even close to what TB has been for last 10 years. Right? Each year we have almost 10 million cases of TB in India itself. So it's a huge public health uh, epidemic of sorts, right? And that's been, you know, people have been trying to sort of figure out ways to solve that problem. And yeah, so some of those aspects started becoming very clear that there's a place which is, I mean, right now in India, that's, that's something we can help out with. And outside India also, when we started talking to other geographies, you know, across the world, we started realizing, yes, that chest x-rays is, for example, a very big problem. And that's how I guess we got started. It was a lot of are talking to different stakeholders, not just healthcare providers, but governments, the radiology providers. So yeah, public health specialists. So all of that, I guess, gave us a lot of insight. Yeah, but at the same time, one thing that I would like to say and probably might help other people listening is also a lot of times people give you ideas of what can be done and also a lot of times they say what cannot be done. So I do remember initially some of these conversations, people would be completely... You know, I would not say pessimistic, but definitely not very encouraging of what we would be able to do. And they were like, you know what, there's not really much point of you trying to do all of this because at the end of the day, I can only identify, you know, one disease, two disease, but in chest x you know, got like 50,000 things to look for. So there were, there were a lot of people, I would not say naysayers, but probably definitely they meant it for good. But yeah, somehow people can not imagine a lot of times what really to build, right? And people have their own ideas of what can be done. And sometimes I felt that it's good to sort of believe in, you know, what you think can be done and then just go ahead with it rather than sort of... It, a lot of feedback can also cause a lot of, you know, and a decision paralysis. Let's just make sure everyone understands your product. So you started with, with TB. You said, uh, let's apply AI. What did AI do? Right. So, so to explain you, let me tell you a story of uh, one of our real-life deployments, right? So this is in Philippines. 
So this was slightly later, 2018 maybe. But the story is like this. So in Philippines, so you have got this mobile chest extra vans, which start out from Manila on Mondays. They go out to different parts of the city and remote areas around till Fridays. And then they come back to the city center. And then they upload this. So they do go all these places. They do chest extras of people, primarily looking for TB. But obviously, they don't have radiologists on the place, right? I mean, because radiologists are fairly scarce. I mean, across the world, I guess that's true. So you don't have them. So they come back to the city center and then they upload back the scans on a cloud. And then you have got radiologists reporting them normally around two to three weeks, right? So two to three weeks later, you have some results of these patients that whether they're TB likely or not. And if they're TB likely, you go back to those patients and then you do a confirmatory microbiological test. Right. So this is the current setup that you have. And this is fairly true for TB, for example, in multiple places of the world. That there's a fairly good amount of lag between when the patient is first tested and when the diagnosis, final diagnosis is arrived. And what the problem with is obviously the first thing is your patient health outcomes are I mean devastatingly hampered, right? So you have patients being diagnosed almost three weeks later. That's the first problem. The second problem is TB, much like COVID, is an infectious disease, right? So the more time the patient is undiagnosed, the patient is spreading it to more people, right? It's hampering the community health. And the third thing is primarily the fact that also a lot of these are being low-resource geographies. People don't really have a fixed address to come back to, right? So after three weeks, if we want to come back to that location and pick that patient up for the further second round of testing, it's very tough to sort of trace them back. So people normally also fall out of the funnel. So these are the major problems, right? So now what we did was we use the AI software, which can look at a chest x-ray, it can give out a diagnosis, for example, whether it's TB or not, within like 30 seconds, right? And we place this box as part of this mobile vans. And as soon as people get their scans, within 30 seconds, you have the AI say whether it's a TB suspect or not. And because you can do that in 30 seconds, you collect the sputum right then and there, and then you do the second round of testing within i mean right away at that spot right because you now have a filter to sort of see if you want to do that test and within three to four hours you normally would have that result right away right so what was primarily taking three weeks has now suddenly reduced to four hours right so it's a huge i mean paradigm shift in what the ai software has been able to achieve in some of these places primarily for tb i mean obviously now with without after tb we have now solved a bunch of other problems the most latest one being COVID, and I can probably talk about that later. But yeah, with TB, this is exactly how we have been able to sort of, you know, completely change that paradigm. That's fascinating. That's great stuff. Here's here's what I'm thinking. Building a healthcare startup is hard. In of all places, building in Southeast Asia, where uh, electronic medical health record is a challenge, getting the data is a challenge, and then working with hospitals and the settings you have, I can't think of anything more challenging than that. So can you tell us what are some of the challenges that you encountered and how you worked around them? Oh, yeah. I mean, Ari, I, you have actually just, you know, pick up the most interesting point about all of these stories, which is deploying some of these things in places where you do not have, you know, the most advanced infrastructure to develop, right? The way I have, we have been looking at it is, it's, it's an opportunity. It was an opportunity for us to grow and make everything a lot more robust, uh, you know, and battle hardened, if I would call it. But there are very interesting challenges, right? So, for example, the most interesting one is, for example, interesting or probably the most natural one is the one which is lack of 
internet, right? So you almost would have in parts of India, also in parts of Philippines, for example, when you're going out to rural areas and they're doing these scans, right? So you all, almost always would have no internet connectivity, right? So because of that, we had to figure out ways where normally all AI software healthcare companies have their models normally on cloud and that's how you normally build and you know deploy software but for us it was very clear from the starting that cloud is probably not definitely something we can rely on for because there's just no internet connectivity now that's not the only part of the problem the second part of the problem is we had to figure out how to sort of you know make this solution in a way that it can fit in with a portable x-ray machine right which is normally in a van right so if you normally most of the ai software or every software for that matter you normally have this big soft servers that you normally would put in if you have to do an on-premise setup. But we very quickly realized if we have to ship an entire server and that has to be placed within that small van that are going out for you know doing the screening, that would be fairly uncomfortable and obviously inconvenient for everyone. So we had to figure out also how to sort of compress all of that and put that in a very nice way so that so today we have the solutions which are in a box which is almost you know size of a cookie box, even probably much smaller cookie box. Right. And uh, it's, it's absolutely just there, right? You connect it to the machine and it gets started. So those are some of the, you know, very interesting challenges we had faced. Also, for example, I remember, this is a very interesting story. This is actually around 2018. So we had deployed in southern part of India in a public health hospital. Uh, again, no infrastructure for internet, but at least in other places, say in Europe or other places, you have people who can, radiologists who can report at home, right? They have the infrastructure actually to, look at the cases and report them at home. But for this particular site, there was no such facilities and the radiologists were only there from 10 a.m. in the morning to around 2 p.m. in the afternoon. And so any case that is a trauma case or a critical case is just not looked at, right? I mean, imagine how that, that's a horrible thing to actually, I mean, think about it, right? So either someone is someone who's not a specialist reader who's taking a decision on that or that case is just not being read for like till 2 p.m. in the afternoon to 10 a.m. in the morning. So we had to figure out a, how, a way to sort of solve this. And we sort of went and I'm normally in other places in Europe, if you have to do, do similar kind of thing, we normally have a on, you know, at home reporting infrastructure that we can leverage on to sort of enable the AI to look at a critical case. And, you know, I sort of notify a radiologist or a physician to quickly look at that. But in this case, we did not have that facility. So we had to figure out how to sort of make radiologists look at these cases and, you know, report them at the moment it's identified. So what we did was we asked them what's their most favorite app or you know how, how are they most engaged in online. And because it's a fairly rural parts of India, we found out that they are fairly conversant with WhatsApp or Telegram for that matter. So what we did was, for example, was we put this AI software in the hospital and anytime we see a critical case after 2 p.m. in the afternoon, we send, so we put them in a WhatsApp group not WhatsApp, so it was Telegram. We put them in a Telegram group. And as soon as there was some critical case, we basically send it, started sending a notification on the group. And that completely changed again how they were reporting because now they were all these people were on the same group and they could you know, look at what each other had to comment on the case. And it, it completely changed how they were doing it. So yeah, again, I mean, I have never heard about this anywhere else where people are radiologists are reporting on something at their home on a Telegram group, right? So yeah, there's a very interesting stories that has in how we sort of got started in this part of the world. Obviously, in the other parts of the world, things are a lot more standardized and easier to work around. But 
Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's, that's super impressive. Yeah. I was going back to even what you said of a lot of people said you couldn't do it. Was that correct? Like it would be yeah. impossible. Yeah. I did say that. Yeah. And the fact that you overcame those challenges and it's so interesting. It seems to be a theme too, with a lot of um, entrepreneurs. I think we even had someone say like 80% of people will tell you it won't work. And that's how you know you're on the right path. Did you find challenges when people told you that you couldn't do it? Or did that inspire you even more to make it happen? Yeah, people definitely did. And I mean, even for COVID, for example, when we got started, um, yeah, people definitely, there were a lot of people that had different views on this. Yeah, it's sort of somewhere it sort of pushes you to sort of, you know, look at it. And uh, yeah, while you're open to feedback, so I'm, I'm not definitely so... A lot of times what happens is also if you're trying to prove something, you sort of stop listening to feedback. So while I'm open about it, but I'm, I would still not sort of, you know, want to stop myself just because there has been some, you know, I would still want to get it out to people who are really the end users and sort of collect feedback from them because that's the most critical feedback, right? People who are going to use the software, who, uh, who are going to get helped by it, that's the most important. If they obviously had said no and, you know, after using, they figured that that's not going to work out. Uh, we would love to hear about their feedback and how we can make it better. So that's the journey I think is most important, right? It's obviously there might be people saying, you know, it doesn't work. So end users can also for the first time say it's not working for them. But then the idea is to be open to be open for the feedback and sort of understand from them why it's not working. In fact, this one interesting thing that I have figured or probably you know, understood is that for your first, I guess, five to 10 customers, it's basically if you're building a product that's more like a service or a consultancy assignment, you're building it primarily for those people, right? And uh, if you're open to feedback, you customize that as per their requirement. And then you suddenly have a product that has a product market fit altogether. That's a great advice. So build it for first few, learn from it, draw patterns, and then then that's where you get your product. So switching to COVID-19 now, what are you guys doing there and, and what role is your company playing? So the chess takes your software, right? So the one that started with TB at 20, 2017, right? So that now has evolved over the last period of three years to sort of uh, look at all different kind of abnormalities apart from TB. So now it can detect around 28 abnormalities apart from TB, right? And this is all major chest X-ray abnormalities. So now, some of those abnormalities also include what normally would be COVID's, the radiological manifestations of COVID, right? So those were also some of the things we already had the regulatory approvals for in this in that last three years now. When COVID happened, we definitely saw that there's probably a, you know, there's something again we can probably help out in this particular scenario because we already had the capability to detect the corresponding findings already. So we repurposed that entire software. So it was already detecting those 20, 28 things. So we said that we now want to look at if we can also do look at COVID and pick that up from the chest x-rays. And what we found that there were two specific uses that we have been able to sort of use the software for. So the first one is in places like, for example, we had deployed in UK, we have deployed in Italy, so some of the hotbeds of COVID, right? And what we found Mexico as well. So what we found in all these places is that the software is extremely helpful in monitoring the progression of how the once a patient has been admitted, right? And you want to sort of monitor how the patient is improving on a day-on-day basis or probably on a two to three day interval period. Chest X-rays is the most common way because there's nothing 
more, I'm nothing better than that to sort of monitor how their lung has been improving or, you know, deteriorating over a period of time. So chest X is the most reliant method to do that because you have normally, these patients are all intubated, they're in ICU. So it's very tough to move them around for anything else, for any other kind of imaging. So chest X-rays are easy to do very, they can just place by the bedside and you can do the scan very quickly. So because that was a thing and obviously on the scan, we were able to look at what the, you know, not only the abnormalities that we could detect, but we could also mark out what the percentage of the lung that was infected, which was a very key concept that sort of resonated with people, right? Because now we could sort of see how the patient's previous scans were, what was the percentage lung involvement in those scans and how that is sort of improving. And for radiologists to do that is extremely difficult because uh, they cannot actually mark out. I mean, it would be very time consuming for them to mark out the exact contours of the lung that has been affected by COVID. So this basically had a strong user base, I would say, in a lot of parts of the world, right, where we deployed for COVID. This is the first use case. The second use case is even more interesting. So this we started off with few places in India and then now again within Southeast Asia, we are doing in multiple places. It's still ongoing. So a lot of times what happens in these places is COVID is primarily spread through asymptomatic people, right? A lot of, I mean, not primarily, but yeah, at least there's a huge amount of incidence of asymptomatic people. Now, in this particular geographies, you have a huge lack of RT-PCR or the testing kits, right? So if you have a huge lack of, say, you have got just 15 kits, right? But you need to test, say, 100 people. And this 100 people could be people who are registered as contacts of the COVID-infected people. This could be people who are at a high risk of sort of getting COVID. So, yeah, a bunch of people whom you need to test. But there are just 15 kits, right? So the question then is, how do you choose out of those 100 people, which are those 15 people that you need to test right away? And the answer to that is primarily the people who are at the highest risk of losing their life, if not tested right now, are the ones you want to sort of test right away. And the best way to sort of know that, again, is our old friend chest x-rays, right? Because on chest x-rays, if something shows up as, you know, on on the, on the lung impression shows up, then you probably know that that there's something which is critical and needs to be acted right then and there. So that's the biggest advantage we could play out in all these places is primarily be able to reduce that mortality, right? And this is a huge, huge advantage in some parts of the world again. I mean, where you just don't have enough kids and you, you have to test a lot of people and you, there's just no way to sort of, you know, know which patients to... Obviously, there are some people who are already showing symptoms. So obviously, you test them. Uh, some probably at a high, at an old age, right? So you need to test them. But then among the rest of the people, there could be a lot of people who are asymptomatic and they would not have anything. I mean, they would not show any symptoms, but their lung is already infected, right? And if you don't pick that up right then and there, you can lose that. And that has happened in multiple places. So you can lose that patient fairly quickly. So that's where we are able to pick those patients up and get them tested and reduce the overall mortality. So that's something, I guess, the two major ways in which we have been able to fight the pandemic. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. So where have you deployed your COVID solutions? Is it mostly in India? No, India, Southeast Asia, a couple of countries. Outside Southeast Asia, as I said, UK, Italy, uh, Mexico, in Russia. So yeah, a lot of places which have been hard affected, I would say, yeah, hard hit by COVID, right? So yeah, those are, again, yeah, so Australia also, yeah. So Australia also was not as hard hit by COVID as some of the other parts in Europe. Rohit, you're on to amazing things. 
And I know building a startup is hard, and I assume it's probably a little harder in India. So I want to know, what has your experience been like building a successful startup in India? And how has your local ecosystem supported you? And what were your challenges with it? Yeah, I guess that's a it's an interesting question and there's a lot of parts to it. So in terms of support and, you know, I probably answer that second question first because it's easier to sort of answer. So in terms of funding and getting that support, uh, yes, we have been lucky to sort of get support. So we just raised good round from Sequoia, uh, India, around just four months back. So, yeah, and in terms of funding, I think we have, because the quality of work that we have been able to do out of India and sort of, you know, impact a global audience through our work. So that probably was not as much of a challenge because not a lot of companies in India, probably, let's say, would be able to do that. And we have, for example, we have got the FDA clearance just a few weeks back, right? So that was, India, I guess, the first ever Indian AI company to get an FDA clearance altogether. So, yeah, in terms of, I guess, support, that's not been as much of a critical thing, I would say. I mean, we have been fairly lucky to do that because we were very focused on research. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, also on initial seed investors, they were fairly supportive. So that's not been a challenge, I would say, as much. But I guess the bigger challenge is primarily been, you know, the perception of AI. And that's something that is, you know, when normally a lot of the perception is primarily around AI replacing radiologists and specifically people who do not have that understanding, right, of what AI can do. So fighting that perception has been extremely difficult within India, I would say, at least, you know, while we were building this, that's one of the, I guess, one of the primary challenge has been that, right? How do you fight uh, that perception, whether, and really convince people that AI is not just to replace their job, but it's actually to enhance what they've been doing. So that's, I guess, the one primary thought that first came onto my mind. Apart from that, I guess, the other thing is, you know, because i mean it's probably related to that point but i guess uh since in we've been based out of india and you know we have been doing all of this good research work so a lot of our recognition for some reason was outside india and uh, i mean that's probably a good thing to have but yeah within india we did not really have that kind of a you know when we started off there was not really as much of a recognition that we would have got because you know the kind of research work that we were doing yeah, it's only later on then when we started having the global validation sort of coming in. That's when I guess we also got a lot of push within India. And that's, I guess, it's, it's a fairly common thing because to happen because, I mean, an AI company, you know, you're not able to realize the value of that probably until now. And it's a lot of times. And, and that has probably been also because of a lot of AI companies coming into that whole scene around 2016, 2017, right? And people were not sure, right, what is hype versus what is really for there to stay. So... I guess, yeah, probably that's also the reason that sort of stayed. Um, that, I guess, is one of the major yeah. challenges that we had to fight. You know, how we that's, establish ourselves as an authentic AI company. That's great point. Now, turning towards the leaders in healthcare and industry experts, think of it as, as the, the customer and the users of your product. Based on what you've learned dealing with them, what advice do you have for them? How can they, one, help you accelerate your journey and two, adapt to to the new technology and augment what they have with AI and, and applications you're building? In terms of strategy, I think it's very important for everyone listening, specifically people who are leading healthcare organizations. So it's very important to sort of have an AI strategy at place. 
to the extent that probably have someone who's responsible for that strategy and then also give that person enough leverage to sort of you know do and try out different things because in essence ai is it can be really helpful i mean forget about what any ai company that is pure can do but overall what ai can leverage and you know do things is genuinely a lot and there's a lot of value to be generated right so it definitely needs someone to really have a proper thinking about it and sort of you know enact a strategy based on that the second thing which i would definitely say is that which i have seen definitely in parts in different parts of uh, us i would say and you know other places also is that a lot of times ai is that hype that people are chasing so people tend to think of ai as a cool thing that they definitely need to get in and you know if you don't have it then you're probably falling behind on something like that so while you should have an ai strategy but at the same point of time try and think more in terms of i would suggest you know what the value that ai can bring to you right so rather than just having an ai in place just to you know for example the ai today we have at say one of the products can read and interpret multiple things from a chest x right but just having that multiple interpretation is really not enough right so you have to think how that interpretation sort of generates value for you right you have to think how that sort of integrates with your existing workflow how that can automate a bunch of things and then you know exactly what it how it's affecting the bottom line right so thinking about the use case is something that i would definitely suggest to everyone listening right because a lot of times i've i've seen that right if you don't have that use case in mind even when we work with a lot of healthcare leaders if they don't have the use case in mind normally it's very tough for us to also show what value we bring to the table right so that's something very critical i would say and that's really interesting it ties kind of into my next question of what i wanted to ask you with aspiring entrepreneurs or even people out there who really are unhappy at their jobs because even when i worked corporate i saw people older than me and and they kind of felt stuck i think in the reality maybe they're they're not stuck but you got out at a young age and you realized that's not what you want to do so do you have advice for aspiring entrepreneurs or even advice for people who are just unhappy with their jobs and looking to create something on their own yeah i mean i don't know i mean this is probably tough to answer but i would say i mean obviously if you're a young aspiring entrepreneur then definitely there's i, I would definitely suggest again i mean take the risk right now because that's where you can actually afford to take the risk later on it probably might get tougher but although having said that i have really seen people also who take that jump and plunge later on in their life obviously and that has both its nuances right so when we started off so the other thing that i would definitely say to aspiring people is that so i have learned that sort of hard way is that you need to really think through you know while it's easy and sort of adrenaline pumping to sort of do your own startup and jump onto the passion it might be just worth a bit of time to sort of you know start something on the side and you know just sort of see how that you know how that sort of plays out and you know what the market looks like whether that's something you're enjoying or not right because a lot of times i have realized for example i like need to do your own thing but then as uh, sooner than later you realize that's not really the thing you want to do right and for example what happened with me was i had my savings and i within 6 months i completely exhausted all of that savings just trying to do this experimentation right uh which i think could have definitely been now looking back i definitely think some of that experimentation i could have just you know done while i was at the job right so while jumping out of the job there are a lot of aspirational things i would definitely one thing i would say is they yeah, are just before jump think about it and with that too do you think mindset plays a lot into it because somebody can have an amazing idea and really dive right in but have you seen that your mindset and the way you look at things has really shifted 
that for you and really helped, you know, helped you be successful in a sense, like with your mindset? Yeah, that's interesting. So interesting point. So before I met Ari at 2016, and we were working on a bunch of machine learning problems back then. So interestingly, so around 2015, and if you talk about 2015, I had no idea of what, for example, machine learning was, right? I had, for example, coded very less, actually, just in college, some of it, right? And yeah, well, machine learning obviously was picking up at that point of time. And then obviously from there to sort of pick up the entire AI journey as it happened. So one of the things that I definitely think in terms of mindset that worked out for me was that ability to sort of pick up something on the go, right? So, and off late also, for example, I have not been much involved in AI, but I've been doing a bunch of other things. So as a startup founder, you have to obviously think about, you know, what's that, how quickly can you pick up different things, right? If you're not picking up things very quickly, that's probably going to hurt. So I think if you can, if you have just have that one, just ability and mindset that, you know what, whatever come may, you're going to pick that up and you're going to just excel at it, right? Given enough amount of reasonable amount of time, then that sort of sets you up for that game, right? Because then you're not afraid of, because obviously in a real world, you have limited number of skills and you genuinely cannot be good at a bunch of things. And it's okay, probably, I guess, to be not good at, but at any particular point of time, if you can pick up something quickly and just get good at it and then again move on to the new skill, I think that's what is the most important thing that played out for me. Very interesting. Thank you for sharing. That's great advice. Hey, uh, Rohit, thank you for taking the time to tell us your story and talk about Cure. It seems like you have done amazing, amazing things. And and I loved how you Every time you came across a challenge or an opportunity, you you, you worked your way around it and, and you applied what you had to COVID and, and how you applied it and the use cases you solved are super, super impressive. I think it'll be a great, great learning episode for the listeners. And it was also good to talk to you and hear you and hear all the awesome things you're on to. Pleasure, Ari, to be invited on here. Yes, thank you. It was very inspiring. Thanks. Thanks a lot for having me over. And yeah, I mean, genuinely, you know, what we were doing in 2016 and what it has been, it's sort of surreal for me as well. So yeah, happy. And I guess a lot of it is also the fact that a lot of things fell in place and we were consistently putting that hard work. So that sort of played out. But yeah, I mean, genuinely very good. I mean, I really feel good to sort of you know, chat with you, Ari, after so long and great to discuss the story. Thank you so much for being here today. If you like what you heard and are interested in more, visit us online at brainedbehind.ai and sign up for my monthly AI startup tracker. That's where I cut through the noise and bring you AI startups that are making tangible progress. Till next time, go out, be the brains behind AI.